Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, April 5th, 2018. Can't remember the last time we did a Mark Driscoll update, but guess what we're doing today? Kind of preempted something I was working on for today's episode. Maybe I'll get it in tomorrow. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over it again. We demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put out there for consumption by evangelicals, it's far, and I mean really far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. There's no shortage of people who are twisting God's Word, making it void, scratching itching ears, teaching for shameful gain, things that they ought not to teach, and they're going to have to give an accounting to Jesus for all of these false words, because Scripture is clear that no lie is of the truth, and that the devil is the one who is the father of lies. And it is through these lies and twistings of Scripture that people are being literally led away from Christ and led into the open arms of the devil as he gets ready to do his swan dive into the lake of fire. So we want to save you from a a bad outcome, if you would, of false doctrine, which, you know, the worst outcome, and it will happen to many, is uh, that they are not Christians. They will not be saved. And so we want you to know the truth. We always say that you need to listen not with an open mind. I don't need you to give me the benefit of the doubt. Don't need it at all. Don't need an open mind. What I need is an open Bible. All right, so with that, let's talk about what it is that we are going to attempt to accomplish on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to begin with a Mark Driscoll update. Yep, Mark Driscoll has reemerged, and uh, he's got a book that he's going to be publishing shortly. It'll be out with Charisma House Publishers. 
Uh-huh. Yep. And uh, they have a promotional video for uh, the book. The name of the book is Spirit-Filled Jesus. And based upon uh, the early part of the announcement of this book and what I know about Driscoll's theology from reading his um, doctrine book is that uh, he's one of these fellows who holds to a canonic view of Christ, that Jesus did everything he did as a spirit-filled man, and uh, he, you know, he actually is quite open in the book Doctrine where he got this idea from. Now, I haven't read the book, and it is my suspicion that theologically that's where he's going to go. There is, there wasn't enough substance in the early portion of the interview for me to say, you know, hey, that we've, you know, this is clearly going to be a mess. I would say there's a really good chance it's going to be a theological mess. But we're, what we're going to do is we're going to pop ourselves kind of into the middle of the announcement regarding the book. And we're going to note a couple of things, and that is is that Mark Driscoll has now reemerged as a full-blown charismatic. Yeah, it's absolutely true, and uh, we'll listen to him about that. But we're also going to note that Mark Driscoll is still playing the victim regarding the demise of Mars Hill in Seattle, and uh, and he has not publicly apologized, repented, made things right with those whom he abused. And uh, as a result of it, I mean, this is a very dangerous fellow. He has literally no conscience. And so we're going to note that, you know, this segment will be that Mark Driscoll reemerges as a charismatic and still plays the victim. That's what we'll call this. And then... Uh, we'll take a break uh, when we're done with the Mark Driscoll segment. And then a uh, second half of the first hour, we're going to take a look at the two most current Passover scams out there, one by Larry and Tiz Huck and uh, one by Rod Parsley and Steve Muncy. And we're we're gonna. This will be one of those uh, segments of fighting for the faith. There'll be a crossover segment. It'll be available not only with uh, the podcast, but will also be available over at our YouTube channel. So if you know uh, anybody who is falling for these Jewish feast day Passover scams by anybody, you know it doesn't matter if it's Rod Parsley or Larry Huck or not. Uh, please send them the YouTube video of that segment so that they can be warned and uh, and not give their money away to these people who are literally scamming them. And it's absolutely egregious the way in which they are doing that. And uh, then in hour number two, we are going to uh, listen to a few good sermons. Uh, we'll be hearing from uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, uh, Mark Bestial, and one other. Uh, first time we've ever played a sermon by this fellow up in Canada. That's where the Canadians are from, by the way. And uh, we'll be uh, listening to his Easter sermon, Mark Bestel and Wolf Mueller. So that will round out today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable since this is the first time we've done this kind of update in a while. Brace yourself. Uh, here's our Mark Driscoll update music. says we don't feed no sheep so get busy and amuse those goats 
don't be lazy. You're here to satisfy the leader's God-given vision supreme. If you dare to question him, well, there'd certainly be a scene. Look out. Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off. And another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, he's gonna get you too. Another one's off the bus. People disappeared, never to be seen again. I thought this whole darn thing was a joke, but I changed my mind when I saw the pastor jump on the bus, tear out screeching down the street. People were getting squashed like bugs and piled up like dead meat. Look out. Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off, and another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey. They don't care about you. Another one's off the bus. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus, they gotta get run over. There are people who wanna take turns driving the bus, they gotta get thrown off. Because <laughs> they wanna go somewhere else. There there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. Off the bus. Pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. Well, it's not growing anymore, but I think you get the idea. I mean, anybody would call themselves a pastor and have that as their ministry philosophy clearly puts them outside of somebody who's qualified to be a, a pastor. Well, unfortunately, Mark Driscoll has restored himself to ministry. He's now pastoring at the Trinity Church out in Scottsdale, Arizona, or at least in that area. And uh, Charisma Magazine has picked him up as an author and is getting ready to publish his latest book, Spirit-Filled Jesus, which I think, I suspect, I'm not sure, but it if I had to guess, I would say it's going to be filled with kind of a canonic Christology and uh, we've noted you know, in the past that uh, this is something that 
Driscoll buys into. Listen to my lecture that I delivered at the 2016 Pirate Christian Radio Conference on Canonic Christology. I think I quoted Driscoll in that and the person where he got the idea from. But uh, in today's installment, we're going to note that uh, now that Driscoll has decided to reemerge a little bit more publicly now, he's come out as a full-blown charismatic and a defender of the charismatic movement, including the so-called private prayer language, which, by the way, tongues is not a private prayer language. That's not its purpose. But we're also going to note that he is still blaming his victims. This is the man who lost his ministry because of his over-the-top, outrageous, control-freaky, narcissistic, you know, iron-fisted leadership of Mars Hill. And on top of it, all of that came to light as a result of his habitual and chronic plagiarism. You know, and, and yeah, this, this all was, you know, played out just a few years ago. And so, you know, immediately I have to ask the question, uh, did, did Mark Driscoll actually write the book, Spirit-Filled Jesus? Or uh, who did he plagiarize from? Because that's, that's a legitimate question based upon his um, previous shenanigans. And it's also important to note that uh, as part of the whole Driscoll meltdown, it came to light that Driscoll spent church money lots of church money, Mars Hill church money, in order to artificially make himself a New York Times best-selling author. All of this is chronicled in the archives of Fighting for the Faith, and if you're not familiar with this, you need to bring yourself up to speed. Now, I, I don't have any confidence that Driscoll is going to come back with the same vim and vigor that he had before. It, clearly, his... Uh, Best days are behind him as far as popularity is concerned, but the fact that he is still victim-blaming when he was the abuser is just absolutely over-the-top crazy, is the best way I could put it. So here's Mark Driscoll uh, and his interview with uh, the uh, Steve Strang of uh, Charisma House regarding his new book, Spirit-Filled Jesus. Here we go. Tell me about the journey that you've been on to discover this about the Holy Spirit. So for me, God spoke to me when I was 19 years of age. I was a brand new Christian. So Mark Driscoll claims direct revelation. By the way, I remember back in the day, 10 years ago or so, you know, Driscoll was the poster boy for what was called New Calvinism. Mm -hmm. Calvinism that denies sola scriptura. Calvinism that uh, believes in, you know, receiving direct revelation from God. Yeah, I th- he's dumped the Calvinism thing, and now he's just a charismatic. Yeah. College, didn't know anything. I took this Bible that Grace had given me when I was in high school, got saved in reading. I went to a men's retreat somewhere on the Washington-Idaho border in the middle of nowhere, and the pastor said, uh, go get some time with the Lord. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know he took appointments. I didn't know how he (laughs) scheduled one. And so he just said, well, go out in the woods and talk to Jesus. I was like, okay. So I went for a walk and I asked Jesus, what do you want me to do now that I'm a Christian? And he spoke to me audibly. He said, Mm. so Driscoll, the uh, plagiarist and um, spiritual abuser, 
He he claims to be a fellow who has heard the audible voice of Jesus. Makes you wonder why the audible voice of Jesus didn't tell him, thou shalt not steal, when he was plagiarizing other people's work for his previous books. Uh, Mary Grace, I'm very happy to do that. Uh, Preach the Bible, which I've been doing since that time. Train men and plant churches. Spoke to me audibly with four things. I came back to my pastor. I said, God spoke to me. Um, I didn't even know he did that. And he said, well, that's the word of the Lord to you. You need to obey that. So since that time, started doing, by God's grace and by the Spirit's power, to the best of my ability, exactly what God commanded me and commanded us to do. And so that began a journey where as I'm reading the Bible, I'm seeing how God works in supernatural and miraculous ways. So note, I would also note here, this tells you something about the dynamic of his marriage. He claims God commanded him to marry Grace, and by extension, God was commanding Grace to marry Mark. Hmm. And then for a season, I worked in some church context and was in some ministry contexts that are not so open to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, would be critical of a private prayer language of speaking in tongues, would see miracles, God speaking, supernatural revelation in very suspicious ways, and got a lot of pushback and blowback. But I went back to God's Word. I believe the Bible, and I believe that there is no way you can come to a position that God has ceased doing the supernatural, the unexpected, uh, simply by a reading of God's Word. Mm, So God has not ceased to do the supernatural or unexpected. I would argue God still continues to do the supernatural, and that's not the point. So uh, I would recommend that you take a look at the videos we've produced on our YouTube channel as it relates to You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist. And we'll note, and you know, the other thing I, that's also available on our YouTube channel is a very long uh, lecture called you know, Debunking the Two Pentecostal Distinctives, where we do an exegesis of uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, as well as Acts chapter 2, to demonstrate that the two uh, Pentecostal distinctives of a second baptism of the Holy Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues, that is absolutely not biblical. And uh, along the way, you learn that this idea that somehow tongues is a prayer language, that's also in our, uh, you don't have to be a cessationist series, uh, you know, that that is not at all what tongues are. So fascinating. So here... Driscoll is uh, making Steve Strang of Charisma House just, oh, so happy with joy. The, the look on his face is amazing. He just can't believe, oh, we've got, we've got somebody like Mark Driscoll, the Bible teacher Mark Driscoll and his theological acumen and prowess now on our side defending, <clears throat> speaking in tongues and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I kind of planted my flag there, and I've been preaching the Bible for more than 20 years. And uh, that led to this concept of uh, Spirit-filled Jesus. Sometimes various teams and tribes of Christianity will argue and fight. My hope, prayer, and goal is to get everybody rallied around Jesus. And if we're rallied around Jesus, I think then we'll have a lot more unity than disunity. We'll have a lot more that we... Yeah, I'm sorry. You're not qualified to be a pastor, and you're now trying to rally everyone around Jesus. And already I have biblical issue with the things that you are saying hmm on because of who we're devoted to Absolutely. and and so that's kind of the big idea and the heart behind the book is uh open the bible get to jesus be filled with the holy spirit so you can live by his power
That's what it's all about, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. So tell me, what is the felt need that you think the reader will take away from this message? There's some uh, there's some painful parts of our story in there. So uh... now, so here come the painful parts of his story. And remember, the reason why Mars Hill doesn't exist is because of his abuse. And he is blaming his victims here. No, no talk of repentance at all uh, or anything of the sort. In fact, he's going to play the victim. The reason why Mars Hill ceases to exist, well, tacitly, is because, well, he's a victim. Listen to this. We went through uh, a season where we just felt a little overwhelmed and needed to, as a family, uh, practice forgiveness. I don't know if you want to tell the story. A, a season where you felt overwhelmed, mm-hmm. where Mars Hill literally imploded because of your abuse and your plagiarism, your mismanagement of money, your scam to make yourself a New York Times bestselling author. And it was just a season where... That he is he and his family had an opportunity to practice forgiveness, not repentance, but forgiveness. Anywhere, um, we'd been in ministry for eighteen years and then transitioned um, out of that, and it was a Sunday. And I'm a pastor, but we didn't have a church to go to. And so, I don't know if you remember when I came out of the uh, bedroom, I'm in my pajamas. You and the kids were waiting for me in the living room. <laughs> Yeah, we still needed to have community together as a family at that time. And so we gathered, I gathered the kids and they each wanted to participate in some aspect of church. Um, my youngest daughter wanted to do some worship songs. My sons wanted to read some scripture. Um, we knew we had a pastor, <laughs> Andy. <laughs> um, and my youngest wanted to even collect an offering so that he could give it to a single mom that we knew. So we we just gathered together and we just started praying and Mark felt like God was leading him to teach unforgiveness. So he searched. So God was leading Mark to teach on unforgiveness after his family found themselves without a church to go to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, important to note here. Know this for a fact. The elders of Mars Hill were going to put Driscoll under discipline take him out of the pulpit for a while so that that he can address and repent of his sins, get the help that he needs, and then the the goal was to restore him to ministry. And at that time, he claimed that God told him that it was a trap and that God had released him from ministry. So he is still a fugitive from church discipline. Straight up. That is a fact. And he doesn't tell Steve Strang any of that part of the story, nor any of the people watching this video that part of the story. No, no, he's just found himself in in, in a season where he's needed to learn to practice forgiveness. And God laid it on his heart to preach to his family about the need for them to forgive and to not harbor unforgiveness. Uh Uh-huh scriptures with us and we all learned what forgiveness in the Bible was and really what that meant for us in that season. And so my church was Grace and our five (laughs) children. So, I mean, it was the greatest church that has ever assembled. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. His narrative begins with, you know, that little family practicing forgiveness 
but no mention of anything as to why he's no longer the pastor of Mars Hill. Huh? For me, in that season, I didn't want our kids to be bitter against God, me, their parents, the church, anybody or anything. I believe that the heart of the demonic is unforgiveness. And I believe that Jesus and the Holy Spirit work through forgiveness. Satan and demons work through unforgiveness and bitterness. And I believe any time you refuse to forgive, you open yourself up to demonic torment and you bring haunting. and, mm-hmm. and, and de- Right. So anytime you don't forgive, you open up yourself to demonic torment and haunting. Hmm. What about impenitence? What about impenitence? Wouldn't that do something similar? Station into your own life and family. And so we, we were crying. We were emotional. We were a mess. We were a mess. And, uh, and that as, I, as I opened the Bible, I didn't have a sermon prepared that day for my family. But in our pajamas with tears in our eyes gathered in our living room, I started in Ephesians 4 and then as tears in our eyes because they're victims, but they're going to be big hearted and do the Christian thing and forgive. God brought to mind scripture. We did a large study on forgiveness and that if we don't forgive, the Bible says we grieve the Holy Spirit, that he wants to help us forgive, be unburdened, sort of bury the past, move on. What about the Holy Spirit wanting to help you repent? future. So one of the chapters is on forgiveness. Uh, Another one of the chapters is on your family. A lot of people don't know this about Jesus' family. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. His cousin John the Baptizer was filled with the Holy Spirit. His aunt Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. His uncle Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. His mom Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit. His two brothers went on to be spirit-filled pastors who wrote books of the Bible. And so we talk about how Jesus' family was all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all did ministry together. And if you're a parent, the question is, well, what's the most important thing for your kid? To be filled with the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. And then their life will go the direction that God has for them. So there's... Yeah, which kind of begs the question. I mean, is he literally going to be arguing for a second baptism when Ephesians 4 makes it clear that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of us all. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, problematic to say the least. I mean, that's the easiest way we could put it. And the fact that he still has is still spinning the narrative that he's some kind of victim, and uh, and well, you know, and he had this opportun- great opportunity during that tough season in his life to you know to practice forgiveness when what he should have been practicing at that time was not forgiveness but repentance and seeking to reconcile with those whom he had literally abused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes it very clear to me that uh, Driscoll should should not be preaching or teaching God's word to anybody anywhere. This is an extremely dangerous fellow. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we're going to take a look at this year's Passover scams by Larry and Tiz Huck and Rod Parsley and Steve Muncy. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. 
This might feel like theological waterboarding, but you'll get used to it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. New from Los Lobos Ministry Records. An album that's just oozing with the love of Christ. It's Pastor Perry Noble's new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. The songs on this album will melt your face off in a sanctified way. This album includes... The number one purpose-driven praise techno dance song of all time, entitled, Well, You Might Just Want to Hear It For Yourself. If you're all about the jackass in the church, the jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. What about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. What about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. Don't you feel closer to Jesus after hearing that sample? Well, we've got another one for you, too. This one's entitled, You Officially Suck. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I'm not playing games. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Other tracks include Your Grandma Smokes Weed and I Don't Like Hanging Out with People That Make Me Uncomfortable. Act now, and Los Lobos Ministry will even throw in a free bonus track by Stephen Furtick entitled, Cause They're Stupid. Here's a sample. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. So act now and get Pastor Perry Noble's brand new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. Hey, you. Yeah, you, listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. 
So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Mark Driscoll should not be teaching anybody anything about God's Word. He's impenitent. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. And rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, at Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95. A month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, you can do that by clicking on the become a patron button. And of course, if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable too. Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, time for a money-grubbing televangelist update twin spin. Let's do this. I've got... 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira. Now the Deutschmark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. There is nothing 
quite as wonderful as money. Money, 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 money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, 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 money. Everyone must hanker for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, 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 round. Money, 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 money. Yeah, that Monty Python money song. So we're uh, heading over to the uh, studios of Larry and Tiz Huck and also Rod Parsley along with his guest, Steve Muncy. And we're going to take a look at the current Passover scams that are being perpetrated on people who call themselves Christians. And we're going to note that Larry and Tiz Huck, Parsley and Muncy, these guys are not interested in the truth. They're interested in making a buck, and they don't care what scriptures they have to twist in order to make that buck. And all of these things are done in the name of, well, honoring the so-called Hebrew roots of Christianity, when in fact, really, they're not honoring the Hebrew roots of Christianity at all. They're twisting the Hebrew scriptures, not paying attention to what the New Testament says regarding regarding the current state of the Mosaic Covenant, and they're basically teaching for shameful gain things that they ought not to teach. So well, we're going to start off with uh, Larry and Tiz Huck, and uh, this is their latest Passover scam. Let's take a listen. Here we go. Yeshiva in a in a in a school where yeah. Jewish men and women learn. They're taught in most cases not to take notes because they need to not just hear the words, but right. hear. Yeah, don't take notes because then you might realize that you're being scammed and conned by Larry Huckster. The spirit of those right. words. So I want to ask you today, because we're going to teach a lot of stuff real fast, because I only have about 25 minutes that yeah. we can share this. Don't worry, I'll slow things down. Yeah. And so don't take notes, just press record or however you do that or call for the DVD because we want you to yeah. hear what Amen. God is saying right now. Yes. In Malachi 3, the Bible talks about God opening the windows of heaven. Right. Where that comes from is when we bring an offering three times a year. That offering is on Passover. Now, I'm going to give it to you real fast. Passover, Pentecost, Shavuot, Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. And God- All right. Now, real quick. He just pulled a fast one here, but that's okay. I know how to look for theological and biblical sleight of hand. So he referenced Malachi 3.10, and then when you bring a tithe and an offering, apparently God's going to open up the windows of heaven, and the windows of heaven are opened up only during the three festivals. Hmm. Let's take a look at what Scripture says in this regard, and we're going to note that in order to understand what's going on in Malachi chapter 3, you have to actually go farther back in the context to Malachi chapter 1 in order to understand what's truly going on there. So here's what it says in Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, God is speaking, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says Yahweh Savaoth, the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, well, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that Yahweh's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says Yahweh Savaoth? 
and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says Yahweh Sabaoth? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says Yahweh, Sabaoth, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering." For my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh Sabaoth, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says Yahweh Sabaoth. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering." Shall I accept that from your hand, says Yahweh? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to Lord what is blemished. For I am great, a great king, says Yahweh, Savaoth, and my name will be feared among the nations. That's the context that, well, explains what's going on in Malachi, then chapter 3. In chapter 3, Three, then Malachi says this, verse 5, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh Sabaoth. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh Savaoth. But you say, well, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you in your tithes and your contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation, of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says Yahweh Sabaoth, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says Yahweh Sabaoth. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says Yahweh Sabaoth. Mm -hmm. So you get the idea here. Israel had fallen into, uh, let's say, religious slackery, mediocrity when it comes to obeying the Lord. And understand this, Israel at this time was under the Mosaic Covenant. And as a result of being under the Mosaic Covenant, there was a direct command to bring tithes and offerings. We as Christians are not under the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant has been done away with, and I will explain that to you at this point. Now, note, there was no mention of the Passover or 
Tabernacles or Pentecost or anything like that. That's because Malachi chapter 3 has nothing whatsoever to do with the Passover. What Larry Huck is engaging in is known as proof texting, where he's ripping verses out of context, stringing them together to make it look like they teach the doctrine he's teaching, but the doctrine he's teaching is nowhere taught in Scripture. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16 in recounting the duties and responsibilities of the Mosaic Covenant, says this, Three times a year all of your males, men, shall appear before Yahweh, your God, at the place that he will choose. By the way, that place before the end of the Mosaic Covenant was the temple in Jerusalem. Before it was the temple, it was at the tabernacle. So at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's the Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, they shall not appear before Yahweh empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of Yahweh, your God, that he has given. So under the Mosaic Covenant, the men of Israel were required three times a year to travel to Jerusalem and to bring their offerings of animals as well as financial offerings and uh, bring them to the Lord. But we as Christians are not responsible for this. And you're going to note that if you were to be saying, well, the Hebrew roots say that we have to do this. No, 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 no. The Hebrew roots say the males have to do this. And if you're going to keep this, you've got to go to Jerusalem. Yeah. And you've got to go to the temple. Oh, wait, there is no temple. Hmm. That's exactly right. So let me take a let's take a look at a couple of other passages so that you understand a few things. Is that scripture explicitly teaches that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the things that you see there, the Passover and all the different festivals including the temple and the sacrifices, those were all types and shadows. Let me give you two passages on this so that you can see it from scripture itself. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 says See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, and according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirit of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has now made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he all set aside, nailing it to the cross." He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." So Colossians chapter 2 is one of these passages that explicitly teaches that the the Sabbath and the feast days of the Old Testament, those were all type and shadow, and the substance is found in Christ. And now that Christ, the substance has appeared, the type and shadow have given way to its true form. That's exactly what the inspired author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 argues. Listen to these words. 
Hebrews 10.1, for since the law has but a shadow of the things to come. That would be the Torah. Torah is shadow, type and shadow. Since the Torah has but a shadow of the good things to come, of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of goats to take uh, bulls and goats to take away sins. Notice it does it's the Old Testament sacrifices never took away sins. They were the type and shadow pointing to Jesus. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I will come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the Torah. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So the Passover, the Sabbath, the feast days, all of the sacrifices, those were all types and shadows pointing us to the substance who is Christ. And Hebrews 10, uh, 10 verse 9 has made it clear that Christ has done away with the Mosaic Covenant and has established the second, which is the new covenant, which we are under. This is why Christians have never been obligated to keep the Sabbath, never been obligated to keep the Passover or any of the feast days. In fact, um, when you look at the type and shadow, then it is Christ who is our Passover Lamb. The type, the, the Passover Lamb, was a type and shadow pointing to Christ. The blood covering us and causing the destroyer to pass over us, so that we would not face God's death and wrath, things like that. So uh, Paul, by the way, says this explicitly in in First Corinthians chapter five, verse six, where he writes, "Do you not know that a little." Uh, leaven leavens the whole lump. So cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ is our Passover lamb. So Christians celebrate the true Passover which is caused by the blood of Christ, which keeps us from experiencing God's destroyer. You get the idea. So when you understand that Scripture is about Christ, the Old Testament ceremonial law, the the sacrifices, even the Sabbath itself, are all type and shadow that have their substance in Jesus, then you understand why we are not obligated to keep these festivals anymore, and Christians have not kept them for 2,000 years. But uh, believe me when I tell you that Larry and Tiz Huck and others, yeah, they're they're not about to uh, teach that, at least what Scripture says in this regard. Instead, they want to make money, and they do so by twisting Scripture. So we've already noted that uh, Larry Huck has misquoted Malachi chapter 3 as if somehow it's teaching us that we have to bring offerings to God during the Passover. It doesn't. That's not the point of Malachi 
at all. But uh, let's continue and see how he's going to twist this text up. Says that I will open the window of heaven. Now, that window doesn't hover over us. The Passover window is open yeah. right now today. Right. Man, you know, when I say that, Tiz, I yeah, just... see the Passover window. It's it's open right now. Oh, you got to... But you got to send money to Larry and Tiz Huck. Quick! Holy Ghost. Amen. That Passover window yes. is open right now today. Yes. But it's not a normal Passover. Right now, now is the time to sow your Passover offering. Look at that. Uh-huh. Teaching for shameful gain, things he ought not to teach. We are at the end of, of a Jerusalem Jubilee. Yeah. We are at the beginning of Israel's 70-year anniversary. Right, right. And next week I'm going to get into... Un- Where in Scripture does it say that during Israel's 70-year anniversary that there will be a special extended window opening of the Passover blessing? No text says that. This man's making things up. Playing on people's greed, by the way. Understanding why numbers, the understanding of numbers yes. are so important. Right. Seven is the number of divine protect, uh, mm. perfection. Yeah. Ten is the, is the number for a... Yeah, Tiz Huck is making the yummy sound because, oh, she's thinking, oh, we're going to have more money to fuel our private jet, honey. Yeah, you come on. You milk those people for all they're worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what she's doing. Which yeah. means... Which means the uh, the uh, uh, the presence of God. Jesus yeah. said, "Don't remove one yod or one tittle." Right. When Jesus said, "They have eyes, but they don't see." Mm. To see is vaya r. Yes. But blessed are those who have eyes to see. It's vaya r with a yod. It means seeing what God yes. is doing. Amen. So listen, I know I'm going fast. That's why. Yeah. See, Larry Huck. The reason it's going fast is because this flim flam means you got to just go with it and don't open your Bible because then you realize he's totally lying to you. And uh, so he's claiming to be this fellow who is able to see what God is doing right now. Yeah, that's the reason why, you know, it's the 70-year anniversary of Israel, the Passover blessing window thingy. It's moving. You got to get on it on it now. Send money to Larry Huck. Don't take notes. Just receive the anointing. Yeah, whatever you don't take notes. Mm-hmm. There's a red flag. Yeah. When we come before the Lord this week, the Lord, L-A-R-D, I think that's how you spell it. With a Passover offering, right. the window of heaven is opened up over us. If we miss this, right. oh. we cannot possibly get mm. to 30, 60, 100 fold. Oh, yeah. yeah. You don't want to miss this, man. There's no way you can get to the 30, 60, 100 fold blessing thingy. Because, you know, Jesus talked about 30, 60, and 100-fold in the parable of the soils. Yeah, that wasn't talking about material blessing. Wow, this guy is just sinister. That last week where Jesus said, it's for you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. Amen. Yeah, let's take a look at that, you know, because he's totally twisting Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, you have the first time that Jesus actually preached a parable, and the disciples didn't understand it. And so he's taken Jesus' word. To you is given the mysteries of the kingdom. Apparently the mysteries is all about sowing seeds during Passover window blessing time so that you can get on on the 30, 60, and 100-fold. 
Here's what the text says, uh, Matthew 13, 1, that same day Jesus went out of the house, sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. The whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, some birds came and devoured them, other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear." So then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has, not even what he has will, even what he has will be taken away. And this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So then Jesus goes on to explain the parable. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears, listen to this, the word of the kingdom. It doesn't say when anybody sows a Passover seed offering to a televangelist. It says when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. You see, in the parable of the sower, you're not the sower. Jesus is. He's broadcasting his word. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet he has no root in himself and endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, not sows the money or writes a check. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. In other words, the thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold is not monetary blessing. The thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold is, well, reproducing yourself as a Christian. Mm-hmm. That's what this text is about. Larry Huck is scamming people, well, with no conscience whatsoever. This man's conscience is clearly seared. Turn to me and I'll return to you. How are we returning? Tithes, we know it has, yep. but, but in offerings yep. besides, mm-hmm. and you read the scripture, the offerings of old, mm-hmm. the Passover offering, the Pentecost offering, right. the Feast of Tabernacle offerings. This is what Jesus was saying, 30, 60, 100 fold. Yeah. In this 70 year anniversary, mm. it is, it is prophesied yeah. that the Gentiles who see this, that window will not close. Mm. I believe, we believe yes. a thousand percent that this Passover offering 
is taking us in, and I'm going to say this prophetically, into seven years of physical and spiritual fat. Seven years of fat. And yeah, so send in your Passover offering to Larry Huck, and you'll because he just declared it. The windows of heaven during the Passover offering are going to bring you seven years of fat. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing, and I'm, I'm giving this very quickly. The interesting thing is when Pharaoh saw this dream and Joseph interpreted, he it, what what it doesn't read well from Hebrew and English is there were seven fat cows and yeah. seven lean cows standing together. Right, right. The seven fat cows had eyes to see Amen. and realized this wasn't a point in time. The seven lean cows. Oh, totally making stuff up. Unbelievable. Yeah, the the uh, the the dream of Pharaoh had nothing whatsoever to do with the seven skinny cows not having eyes to see or anything like that. When you read the book of Genesis in the account of Pharaoh's dream of the seven fat cows, the seven skinny cows, the the seven fat ears of corn and the skinny withered ears of corn, that was a prophecy regarding the seven years of plenty followed by the seven years of famine that would occur in Egypt at the time of Joseph. This man is a complete charlatan. Let's take a look now at uh, at, at the uh, cash out here. They want you to send in their money. Here's uh, that portion of this teaching. But listen, everything God tells us to do yes. is supernatural. That's right. Right yeah. now, we are in a Moedim. Yeah. Right now, we are in an appointed time. Mm. And God says, no, we're not. Christians are not obligated to keep the Passover or any of the new new Old Covenant feasts because the Old Covenant has been done away with and the New Covenant has been established by Christ. You bring this first fruit. Yeah. When you bring the first fruit, I will open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing. Yeah, Yeah, that's Malachi 3.10 does not apply here. That's not what's going on. And why would God want me to send an offering to him through you? Just as it's supernatural on the seven places Jesus shed his blood, it's supernatural Amen. when you and I take an yes. offering of yes. first fruits to Israel. Amen. And boy, this year, it's the 70th year anniversary. Don't you know, not only will the windows open, mm-hmm. but they're going to remain open over your life. Yeah. To the coming of the Messiah. We'll be total scam. No scripture says this. He's making all this up. As pastors Larry and Tiz are teaching today, this Passover first fruits offering is going to be one of the most anointed offerings you will ever participate in. It will help fulfill one of the most important biblical prophecies there is in bringing Jews back to Israel, their ancestral homeland. It will also activate one of the most powerful biblical promises there is, that God will open the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Yeah, so just send your money to uh, Larry and Tiz Huck, and God will make you rich because you jumped in on this limited time offer while the window of the Passover blessing thingy is passing over. You don't want to miss it. Yeah, no scripture teaches any of this. This man is an absolute conscienceless, conscienceless scammer. Let's take a look at uh, Rod Parsley's version 
of this, and we'll note any similarities and differences. Rod Parsley uh, is uh, teaching also on the Passover with his buddy, Steve Muncy, who is a scammer from way back. But uh, let's listen into their version of this. Hey there, welcome to your brand new breakthrough. What a season we are in. I hope your heart is being made ready. I hope you're in preparations. It's Passover, Pesach, greatest season of the year. The first, the oldest of God's three feast seasons established just to honor him. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. Yeah, we just read that out from Deuteronomy 16. And only men in Israel in the Old Covenant are required to keep it. And it does require you to travel all the way to Jerusalem and present yourself at the temple of God. Oops, sorry, the temple's gone. Sorry. God-appointed Passover season concludes sundown April 7th. You should have that marked on your calendar. I believe a new season of hope season of promise is coming your way my good friend i'm sure you do how much will it cost me for this season of promise dr steve muncie is with me today to share his unusual prophetic insight into this holy passover pesach season of course you know him as the pastor of family christian center in the greater chicago area i love his ministry here's why I promise you, and we just walked in the studio together and saw each other for the first time today and in many, many months. But I know that God speaks to Dr. Muncie every year. In Yeah, if God were to speak directly to Dr. Muncie, God would tell him to repent. Otherwise, he would burn in hell. This is a completely conscienceless scam artist. Incredible revelation for this season. And so when it's Passover, I tell the team, you get Dr. Muncie on new breakthrough because he's got a word for the world. Yeah, he can make it rain, man. He can bring in the money like you wouldn't believe. We're glad to have a little part in helping him share. Doctor, so good to have you again. Thank you. The miracle is in place. I'm going to move out of the way. There they are. Just open your heart and share with us. The new breakthrough. I love this broadcast. I love your uh, partners, and I love your openness about the power of God Mm. and uh, the prophetic word of God. Amen. You know, the Passover is so important Mm -hmm. to God. It is. Because God says, uh, this is my day. Mm. And new new beginnings start what is so phenomenal. Mm -hmm. What is so phenomenal is that this year is probably the greatest year for the Passover to take place in the history of mankind. Oh, my. Right. Yeah, man, you, you got it. Oh, the Passover this year. Oh, it's amazing like you wouldn't believe. Uh-huh. So notice how they're wetting people's appetites. Really? There's more blessing this year? Yeah. Tell me more about it. I want to explain it. Yeah. I want to tell you that are watching. Of course, Passover, things are going to happen. I can't wait because when we celebrate Passover, there's going to be a changing of the guards. Okay. Just like the ladder. Really, a changing of the guards. Yeah. Tell, tell me more. Set up and Jacob saw it and there was angels went up, yeah. went down. Okay. Or the angel in which um, Jacob 
fault with. Right. And the angel said, you got to let me go. Mm-hmm. Morning's coming. Right. In other words, they're night angels, day angels. Oh, okay. And there's a changing of the guards this Passover for your angel. You are aware that when Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, that was Jesus, right? Yeah, that was none other than God, uh, pre-incarnate, a theophany. Mm-hmm. The Bible says... I will dispatch the angel. You know, there was an angel the first night at Passover. Right. Right. So where in Scripture does it say that God's going to change the guard for your angel and dispatch a different angel? Yes. Yeah, so apparently your your angel's worn out. You know, those those guardian angels. you got some angel who's been stuck to you now for years and years. And, oh, man, he's waiting for a potty break. And poor fellow, he's waiting for the changing of the guard. Well, this Passover season, finally, God is going to do a changing of the guard with the angels. If you believe this, I have a bridge I can sell you in Brooklyn. You remember when Peter was about to be killed and Herod said, I'm not going to kill you. It's Passover. But right after Passover, I'm going to kill you. An angel was dispatched and freed him. I'm talking to someone. You are bound up with sickness, with poverty, with the curse. So notice those are their victims. Somebody who is experiencing an illness and they are experiencing anxiety as a result of it. They are experiencing poverty and they are having a difficult time paying their bills. These people prey on the sick and the poor. That's literally what they're doing. With your children, but Mm. in the next few moments, I'm excited to tell you this is your season. I believe it. Now, the reason Mm. why I express and bring to you... Of course, Rod Parsley believes it, because this is a big payday for him. He's ready for his Passover payday. Send him his money now. Uh, A prophetic word today that this Passover is probably the most important Passover that we have ever experienced since the very first one when Israel left Egypt. Why? There's been some important Passovers in the past, but this one, oh, is only outranked by the first one. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, number one, I would argue the most important Passover was the Passover when Jesus Christ was sacrificed for our sins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Jesus' sacrifice is congruent and totally parallel to the Old Testament Passover. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just saying, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. Jeremiah prophesies and says, if I may turn to it, he says in the 29th chapter, he says these words. He says, for thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years, I will visit you, and I will perform my good word towards you Mm -hmm. in causing you to return to this place. Now, there's two prophecies within that one. Mm. That's when Daniel was there, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And there was an ending of 70 years when Nebuchadnezzar went into Jerusalem and took Jews back to Babylon. The 70 years was ending here. But then God speaks to Jeremiah and says, there's another time when they all gather back together. Yeah. I will visit you in that 70th year. Mm. Now, where do, what, the, the 70 years, you're asking me probably, oh, 70, what's 70? What, what, where are you getting 70? Well, in 1948, Israel... Yeah, here it goes. By the way, Jeremiah 29 has nothing whatsoever to do with the 70th anniversary of the reestablishing of the nation-state of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 29, when we take a look at it in context, we're going to note that this is a letter that was written 
by the prophet Jeremiah, and God dictated it to him. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem, listen to this, to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Yeah, so that's who it was written to, and God is giving very specific commands to them because they're going to be in exile for 70 years. That's what this is referring to, not the 70th anniversary of the reestablishing of the nation-state of Israel. Jeremiah 29, verse 4, we'll kind of pick up some of the context. That says, Yahweh, Savaoth, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease." talking about the Jews in exile in Babylon. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Thus says Yahweh Savaoth, the God of armies, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And I would argue God did not send Rod Parsley or Steve Muncy. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, mm-hmm. not just 70 years completed, but 70 years completed for Babylon, Uh huh. I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. Y'all, by the way, that's plural, declares Yahweh. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give y'all a future and a hope, talking to the exiles. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So, yeah, you'll note here that um, Steve Muncy is pulling a fast one and really trying to magnify this, oh, it's the 70-year anniversary of the nation-state of Israel. It has nothing whatsoever to do with this Passover. Came a state, became a nation right. on May 15th. Right. Take 1948 to 2018, it is 70 years. Wow. Now, God always interacts the beginning of a new season at Passover. Mm. We'll celebrate it May 15th. True. Uh, 2018, 70 years that Israel has become independent and has become a state. Mm -hmm. Now, the Bible says that when he gathers all of the Israelites, all the Jews Uh back, Uh which now there's seven and a half million of them there in Israel, he says, at the end of that 70 years, I'm coming with a visitation. Mm. Now, when we say 1948, (laughs) we kind of wonder, is that a special number in the Bible? Well, from Adam to Abraham was 1,948 years. 1,948 years from Adam (laughs) to Abraham. Yeah, I would challenge that. 
from Abraham's yeah. calling at 70, which okay. was 2018 before Christ. Right. Right. This is like numerolo- numerological bamboozlement going on here. Indeed. You take 1,948 years and you will come up with 3 BC when Christ was born. Think of that. Then when he offered Isaac upon Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah, if you study it, is connected with Calvary there, where where God said, offer up your son Isaac Uh on Mount Moriah. And commentators really lean toward he was nine years of age. And if that is the case, you take 1,948 years, it's the day Jesus Christ died at Calvary. My goodness. When you take 70 years, when Titus tore down the temple. Right. At 1948 years, you'll come up with 2018. Mm. Something's about to happen. Something's happening. Nothing is about to happen except for you are going to be vacuuming out of people's wallets their hard-earned money and making promises for God that he has not made at all. And you're going to have to give an accounting for every penny that you stole from these people. So let me fast forward now just a smidge, and we're going to show you what this scam is really all about. It's all about you sending your money to Rod Parsley, just like Larry and Tiz Huck. It was all about you sending your Passover money to them. Watch this. As always, always, God speaks to your heart as he did the prophets of old, heading into a new... No, Steve Muncy is not like any of the prophets. He's like all of the false prophets of old. He's an... And this word, my friend, is for you. And I feel strongly that it's for all that you love. When Dr. Muncy... Notice. Oh, this holy feast of Passover. It ends April 7th. You got to act now. Call now. Quickly spoke to you about if, if you don't have sickness in your body, God's going to anoint you. Now that, my friend, mm. is an assignment for every single person watching, listening right now. A mighty army is about to arise in the earth full of the power mm. of God to set the captives free. Dr. Graham has passed. Many feel that that is a change. And so they're even pulling Billy Graham into their scam and his death. Wow. ...of the guard. And I sense in my heart that it's the transference, philosophically, if you will, from a man to an army. That all... Yeah, this is the one new man heresy or the Joel's army or the Joshua generation. This is NAR stuff are going to participate in global evangelism, that every one of us is going to be anointed to lay hands on the sick. And it may well begin at the midnight strike sundown of Passover in the 70th. It might just happen tomorrow. You never know. Send your money in now. Here that Dr. Muncy has so, under such an anointing, shared with all of us. Passover, this one especially, is an overwhelming season of the miraculous where God has said, I will do it if you do this. Why the, the com- No, he hasn't. God has not said any of that regarding this Passover. You made it up. 
hands of God, the blessings of God, they're always conditional. God says, I will do. Oh, really? God's blessings are always conditional. I thought salvation itself was a gift from God. In fact, God even promises to give you the faith necessary to believe it. Hmm. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says. Uh Uh-huh. For we are saved by grace through faith. Is not our own doing, it is the gift of God, so that no one might boast. Huh, weird. When you do that, because you have the power to speak into the earth, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus performed more miracles at Passover than at any other time in his earthly ministry. I want to encourage you with all my heart to obey God's command to honor. See, you got to obey God. And how does he, how do you obey God? You send money to this Yahoo. Him during the first and the most ancient of his commanded feast seasons by sowing your Passover seed. Dr. Munsey has had $300 laid upon his heart today. Yeah, so God laid $300 on Muncie's heart. So you got to send in your $300 Passover offering by April 7th. Uh-huh. Believe that. I agree with that. Let's say you don't have the 300 Of course you agree with it. You are as greedy as the day is long. Many of you do. Stretch your faith. Perhaps... You'll sow 150 today and 150 later. Or He'll be happy to take, you know, a down payment. And maybe you can't give all of it by the 7th, but do your best. And, but make sure that you get all 300 of it in as soon as possible. $50 a week for the next weeks. But you're going to lay hold on that promise today. Like Gideon's 300, we're going to arise And God's miracle working power is going to fall upon all of us. Yeah, so apparently God's giving away his miracle working power for only 300 bucks. Yeah, I think you get the idea. These guys are engaging in obvious scammery. Is that a word? (laughs) They are obviously scammers. And all they care about is money. And God warns. Men who uh, take advantage of and make merchandise of Christ's sheep, uh, that they're going to have to give an accounting for all of this to Jesus on the day of judgment. Pray for their repentance, because without it, they are truly lost. And sadly, many of the people they are deceiving are also lost as well. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the day off with, a, with three good Easter sermons. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... (laughs) 
you're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. End the day off with three good Easter sermons. One of them is very short. Let's do this right. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. Look at the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons come to us via Christ Lutheran Church, Nipawa in Canada. Pastor Will Rose presiding. The name of the sermon is Christ Has Risen and Calls Out to You, based upon the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And then heading over, same text, by the way, uh, same text preached by Pastor Mark Bestial of uh, Calvary Lutheran Church, Elgin, Illinois. His sermon titled, Do Not Be Alarmed, It's Just As He Said. And the last sermon will be from Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Same text, Mark 16, 1 through 8. And the name of it is The First Fruits of Eternal Life. The First Fruits of Eternal Life. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and read out the gospel text that forms the basis of all three of these sermons. And you're thinking, how is it that all three of these guys actually preached from the same text? Well, answer to that is that they all follow a standard assigned set of readings. It's called a lectionary. And a lectionary is a good way to protect people from false teaching. Just saying. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And let me go ahead and read out the text that all three sermons are based on. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, which reads, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And the and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. They And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the gospel text that forms the basis of all three of our sermons today. Here is Pastor Will Rose from Christ Lutheran Church in Nipawa, Canada. Christ has arisen and calls out to you. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our sermon on this Resurrection Sunday comes from our Gospel text in Mark. Today is one of the highest points of the church year, Resurrection Sunday. Now, it is true that every Sunday is a mini-resurrection, but today is the Sunday where we celebrate our Lord's conquest over death. The day that the Church triumphantly proclaims that our risen Lord and Savior is alive and sings of the glory of His power over all of His enemies. Mark tells us, And very early in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Typical to Mark's Gospel, we have a very brief account of this first Resurrection Sunday. The women who had witnessed Jesus' death and burial were going to the tomb to finish preparing the body, as was the custom for caring for the dead of that day. As they arrived to the tomb, 
They were in shock to see that the, the stone was thrown down from the entrance and to find a young man in gleaming white clothes sitting in the tomb. And what was even more amazing was that the burial cloths of Jesus were empty. The angel then tells them that Christ has risen, specifically using the name Jesus was most familiar with and was most familiar to the women of that day. Jesus of Nazareth. Before his resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth was a title of derision. It was what they mocked him with on the cross. It was the label that the Pharisees gave to him, and they used to prove that Jesus was a nobody. It was the title that Philip gave to Nathaniel, only to have his friend question if anything good can come from Nazareth. Now, this was the first name that was given by the angel to announce the, res the resurrection of our Lord. Jesus of Nazareth is alive. He has risen from the grave. Those first words from the angels, from the angel, was words of comfort and gospel. Do not be afraid. There is nothing to fear, for Jesus is alive. He is risen. He lays in the crypt no longer, and he now sits at his Father's right hand. Look here where they laid his body. These women, of all people, would know where the body was laid, because just three days earlier, they followed to what they thought would be Jesus' final resting place. There was no mistake that they were in the right tomb, just as there was no mistaking that the body was no longer there. God, in His mercy, revealed the resurrection of His Son first to these humble women, who would then go and tell the world. These who followed Him, who never left His side, while he hung on the cross, while they heard Jesus cry out to his Father, Why have you forsaken me? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And it is finished. Who watched his dead body being laid in that cold tomb. They devotedly clung to Jesus in their faith, not knowing what was coming, but dutifully planned to finish their devotion by caring for the body. Only now, they were given the wonderful task of telling all that Jesus had risen, and to go and to proclaim to his followers that he is alive. Mark continues, the angel says, But go, tell the disciples and Peter, that he is going before you in Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. It is fascinating how Peter was set apart by our Lord through the angel. Peter, who denied him three days earlier, was the first disciple to be named to ensure that he knew that Jesus had risen from the grave. Peter himself was struggling 
He had openly denied Jesus. He had sinned against God and was wrestling with that sin. He was convicted and remorseful over what he had done. He had abandoned his faith and for that brief moment feared man more than God. Peter still trusted in the forgiveness of God despite his struggles though. He didn't leave the group as Judas did, but remained with the other disciples. Peter would receive the words of absolution by this angel through the women as they told Peter specifically that Jesus had risen. In Luke and in John's Gospel accounts, we see Peter making a mad dash to the tomb to see for himself the empty grave. He didn't understand fully what was going on, but he trusted in faith. His Lord had forgiven him. The love, compassion, and grace of our risen Savior is so great so bountiful. In Peter's weakest moment, in his greatest failure of denying Jesus as Lord, Christ did not abandon him. He forgave him through the blood that he shed on the cross, and he forgives you today of all of your sins through that same precious blood. Every one of us here is guilty of falling short of giving in to fear, of denying our Lord. Some may even struggle with that verse in the back of their mind that haunts them. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. There is not a Christian alive who has not denied their Lord in one way or another. Have not given in to fear. But our Lord brings every child of God complete comfort knowing that you are forgiven. You are his child in the waters of your baptism. Just as the angel calls you to call just as the angel called Peter to be told. Jesus is risen, so you too hear this wonderful news. Christ is risen. You are forgiven all of your sins, including the times that you've given into fear, fell short, and denied our Lord. As you trust in His goodness, as you believe that our Lord died for you and was raised from the dead for your justification. You are saved. You are fully forgiven. And you receive every blessing as a child of God. Faith is a fascinating thing. Every one of us can receive this gift. And it is by the will of God that He opens your eyes and your hearts to place that gift of faith in Him alone. Even the tiniest amount of faith in our risen Savior draws you to the riches of God's saving grace. 
We see during this time of turmoil for the disciples that Peter was not alone in his crisis of faith. Judas also struggled in his betrayal of Jesus. We see that both of these men were vexed, troubled greatly by their actions. Judas, unwilling to handle his grief, gave back the money in the hopes of easing his conscience, but that didn't work. Instead of repenting, instead of seeking forgiveness, Judas ends up taking his own life in his despair. The forgiveness of his sins, the saving mercy of God, was available even to the traitor of Christ. But sadly, Judas was unwilling to receive that faith. He rejected Christ and died in his unbelief. We learn in the Augsburg Confession that there must be more than just contrition, more than just feeling bad or sorry for our sins. There must be faith in Jesus. Repentance and trust in Christ alone brings the forgiveness of your sins that is freely promised. It is this forgiveness that calms the terror in conscience and separated Judas from Peter. Every one of us, from the regular attender to those who come on Easter or Christmas Eve, received salvation in the waters of your baptism. The Holy Spirit came to live in you, drawing that faith you received onto the one who bled and died to forgive you all of your sins. Over time, your faith is tried, refined, and tested. It goes through the fires of this world, the devil constantly attacking you, as well as the struggles that every person has with our own sin, our own temptations, and those unbeliefs. For some... This process hardens their faith, stealing it as a wall that continues to be strengthened against the enemy, against our own temptation, trusting in Christ alone, and being strengthened daily as you receive God's grace, weekly divine service. But for some, going through those hard and difficult times shook you to the core. It rattled you so hard that you've been jarred from your faith. And instead of going back and trusting in Jesus alone, you decided to believe in other things. Maybe it was because you blamed him for what happened. Maybe you were hurt or betrayed by a brother in Christ or sister in our Lord. And you blamed the church. Whatever the reason... You have laid your faith aside. And you do not trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Apart from faith in Jesus, you are in the same boat as Judas. You may be truly sorry for what you have done wrong, for your sins, but until you receive the forgiveness won through the cross, you remain outside the body of Christ. 
doomed for all eternity. God calls all of his children back to him. You have turned away, but Christ, in his rich love and mercy, has kept you safe, so that you may receive his loving grace and mercy once again. Today we celebrate our Lord's resurrection. He has risen from the grave. Death no longer has victory over him. And he has lavishly poured out his resurrection love and power on all who trust in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He has saved you and continues to save you for all eternity. He is alive forevermore and longs to give that eternal life to all who come to him. May our glorious and risen Savior continue to strengthen you in the one true faith and lead all who have gone astray back into his rich mercy and grace. Amen. Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. Alleluia. Now, may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your heart and mind in true faith in Christ Jesus, for life everlasting. Amen. Amen. See the difference there? Yeah. Next sermon is from Calvary Lutheran Church, Elgin, Illinois, Pastor Mark Bestrel, same gospel text. The name of his sermon, Do Not Be Alarmed, It's Just As He Said. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for this blessed Easter morn, the angel said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, every joyous Easter morn, our meditation really ought center on two truths of the text. First, the certainty of the proclamation. All of history needs the meritorious death of Christ, and therefore all of history depends on the assurance of the resurrection of the Christ. Second, we ought to consider whether we, then, according to the scriptures, whether we get to benefit from all the victor spoils that flow from that cross and empty tomb. So that's our meditation. First, let's be reminded of the certainty. In our text, it's tempting to weight the certainty of the proclamation by the women's response. Why would Mark's gospel end this way? Doesn't it leave one questioning whether this whole resurrection is uncertain since it doesn't end in shouts of praise, euphoria, adoration of the Lord, but rather with women running away because they are afraid? But really, is the gospel dependent upon the response of the recipients? One could preach the gospel in the middle of the most godless cities of our time. Mecca, or Beijing, or San Francisco. And their disdain for the preaching and their attempts to silence it would not make the gospel less true. There could be five of you here this morning. And it would not make the gospel less true. You can leave here and you can note how indifferent the society around us, the world, even large portions of history are to the news of Christ's resurrection. And that doesn't change the validity of the proclamation. 
that Christ has risen. Instead, the validity and certainty of the good news is first hinted at even in the Old Testament prophets who guaranteed the certainty before the certainty was unveiled for all to see. With certainty, Isaiah reports, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. And how do we know this? Because the prophet says, the Lord has spoken. Because the Lord promised it. Simply because the Lord promised it. Therefore, it must come to pass. And so the women in our text may have been alarmed at the sight, but had Christ not spoken with certainty these words, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die, and after three days, rise again. Certain. Fact of the matter. The Lord has spoken it. And so without euphoria, the angel could say, to the place where he laid him. He's not here anymore. And that same certain life-giving word of God is also appealed to after the resurrection, isn't it? By the apostles. In our epistle, St. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Yes, the preached word is so certain that one can put all of his hopes in it and still be saved from death. On what grounds? Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, just as the Lord had spoken. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, just as the Lord had spoken. And how does Paul conclude? Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, we preach the certainty of Christ's resurrection, and so you believed. In other words, who cares what the rest of the world thinks? What is there to fear when we have the certainty of God's word through the messenger? He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Especially, especially when you and I know that that messenger speaks not on his own authority, but on the authority of the crucified and risen Christ. What's the last thing that the women heard from the angel? The last thing to sink into their heart? The last phrase was, just as he told you. Just as he told you. Even if so alarmed, the women couldn't compute everything they were taking in. Those final words would have echoed in their ears. Put yourself in their place. Have you ever been stunned or blindsided by a situation and you only seem to hear the beginning and the end? In which case, what comfort in the first and the last gospel words of the angel? Do not be alarmed. It's just as he told you. That's the certainty, isn't it? We might be alarmed by a world and society that increasingly is not just passively indifferent to the resurrection, but actively mocks the confession of it as foolish legend. 
Shutting them out, we might still be alarmed by this broken world around us, by the violence and the deceit and the dangers and death itself. Trying to shut out all of that, we might still be alarmed by our own sin and the doubts of our standing before God. And yet in the face of it all, the angel says, do not be alarmed. It's just as he told you. Just as he said. And as Paul declares in the epistle reading, what Christ said is of first importance to be delivered on to the next, as we have received from the previous, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It all adds up the prophecies, the Christ's own claims of himself, his completed work, the angel's report, the confession of those eyewitnesses, so that we may rejoice that this morning and this life is grounded upon a certain fact of the matter truth, that it is just as he said, Christ is risen from the dead. But this is only the first point of Easter meditation, for if the meditation ended there, we would be left with a certainty of history. Yes, it happened, but not necessarily a certainty of our benefiting from its history. And so secondly, we must ask whether this certainty is actually for you. Now when we look to see if we are included in this text, we see only three audiences. Most often and most predominantly, we consider the women, and that makes sense. They go to the tomb. They are met by the angel. They hear the report. They're the ones whose place we want to take. So let's consider them as if us. They were afraid. On the most glorious of history's mornings, they were afraid. Fear is not justified, and it's not justifiable. Even in the face of death, what does the psalmist say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Indeed, scripturally speaking, fear is the first sign and symptom of sin. Adam, where are you? Lord, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid. Simply put, fear is sin. Fear is sin that God isn't in control. And that he doesn't know the plans he has for you. And you know that fear in daily life. The women represent you well. But the gospel for that sin of fear is not a psychoanalysis or self-help program to overcome fears, but is the plain, simple truth that Christ's death atoned even for one's emotionally instinctive doubting of God's plans, and Christ's resurrection is the certain evidence and vindication that Christ's word and promises are trustworthy and true. In short, the gospel silences fear with the certain truth that nothing, not sin, not death, not hell, nothing can pry you from the nail-pierced hands of the risen Christ Jesus. This comforts you and me. Because we know fear. 
We know fear about life and fear about death. We know fear about things present and things to come, about everything in all of fallen creation, and yet none of it can separate us from the love of God because that love of God is rooted in the merit and sacrifice of Christ Jesus. And if the tomb cannot hold Christ, then he lives forever to intercede on your behalf and remind the Father that as he, the Father, loves his Son, then he also loves those for whom his Son intercedes. Father, Jesus prayed, Father, I pray for those who believe in me, that the world may know that you love them, even as you love me. Thus, even seeing ourselves in our text fearful alongside the women, we may say, nevertheless, Christ's death and resurrection is for me. The second audience of our text is the group of disciples. Go tell the disciples, Jesus' angel tells the women. This reminds us that the risen Jesus does not forget his followers. We heard in the upper room discourse that Jesus promised not to forget his disciples. He wouldn't leave them as orphans. He would remember them. And now he has remembered them. Even though it could be argued that he has far bigger, far more eternal matters to think about than a handful of wavering followers, nevertheless, true to his promises, he still remembers them. He still loves them to the end. This is comforting for you and for me. Because we too are disciples. We too are disciples who might think that Jesus doesn't have time to remember us in all of his big grand plans. We may not be the twelve, but we are a small band of followers who believe in Jesus through the word of the twelve. And just as those disciples, we too struggle with the frailty of our faith. This is why their gospel accounts and their epistles exhort us to repent and invite us to believe through their report. Because they sympathize with those who will receive their word. They were once in your shoes. How often did the disciples prove themselves not so great followers? Worrying more about their place on his right or his left. Or who would be the greatest among them. Or how Christ could provide daily sustenance for so many with so few. Or whether they'd survive life's stormy nights. And if the disciples were once in our shoes, then we may see ourselves in theirs. How often we prove ourselves not so great followers, worried more about whether we've earned Jesus' favor to sit at the highest place, worrying about daily bread, or about Jesus' reputation in the public eye and therefore the reputation of those who would follow him, or worrying about the threat of harm and death, but for all their failures and frailty of faith, even their running off into the night at his arrest, his disciples are remembered by this Jesus. Not because they deserved to be loved, but because he loved them to the end. Likewise, your faith might not be very strong. It's not without its doubts and its momentary despairs. 
but the risen Christ still remembers you and still includes you in his post-resurrection plans, still promises to go before you and bring you to a place of gathering to serve and feed you, that you might await your own resurrection. The third audience of Jesus' attention in this resurrection in this resurrection text, is Peter. Peter is singled out because he had sinned against his Lord so infamously. In great pride, Peter had once chastised the Christ for preaching a sacrificial death for sins. In great zeal, Peter had once claimed he would follow the Christ even if all fall away. And then in shameful fashion, he had denied his Christ three times. But Christ remembered Peter, and he would restore Peter. How much this should comfort you and every individual who feels isolated and alone in his sin. For the one who worries that Christ will not forgive him, will not restore him. For the one who worries that her sins are too big, her denial too damaging, her shame too permanent. For you, Peter is your example. Certainly no shining example of faith, but a dear example of Christ's faithfulness to you. That even in the glory of the resurrection, Christ remembered Peter. Even more, he called out Peter. And thus he calls you out. And he remembers you and assures you that even for you, the Christ's death and resurrection means your forgiveness, your restoration, and even your own resurrection. Let's not forget that. His resurrection isn't just about your forgiveness. It's about your own resurrection. That's sometimes hard for us to fathom and to digest. And because it is, as we see our sinful kindred in each of us uh, and in each of these Easter audiences, it's comforting to hear of Jesus' gentleness toward them, his patience with them, his patience with Peter and Peter's restoration, in which Jesus did not condemn him, but gently asked, Peter, do you love me? So that Peter could perhaps sheepishly, but with renewed confidence, say, Lord, you know that I love you. It's comforting to hear of Jesus' patience with the disciples, those who had run away in the night, those even after the resurrection who locked themselves in the upper room and were slow of heart to believe, those who needed to have the law and prophets taught to them anew through the lens of a Christ-centered reading of Scripture that they might eventually respond, did not our hearts burn as he spoke with us? And it's comforting to hear Jesus' patience with the women. With Mary, who asked the supposed gardener where he put the body, because certainly it couldn't be that the angel and the angel's report was actually true. And Jesus doesn't say to Mary, What? You don't believe my messenger? Then you have no part with me. But he gently says, Mary. And her fear melts away, and she rejoices and, des and desires to cling to her Lord. In the same gentle way, friends, he appeals to you. Remember, we heard Paul say he had for us a message that was of first importance. That Christ died for sins and rose again. 
But you know what else Paul says is of first importance? Listen to these words. A few chapters earlier in his epistle to the Corinthians, Paul says, I deliver to you that which is of first importance. No accident that he uses that phrase. And he says, I deliver to you that which is of first importance that our Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. Of first importance are those gentle words that bring to you your resurrected Christ. This is my body. Of first importance are those words that consecrate for you a partaking of his feast of victory. Of first importance and chief benefit are those words which promise you rich food full of marrow and aged wine well refined. This is my body, this is my blood shed for the remission of your sins. And it's of first importance specifically because it sustains you in that resurrection proclamation that is certain and true and assures a share of that resurrection for Peter, the disciples, the women, and you. Do not be alarmed. It is just as he told you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Mm, 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 mm. Last sermon for the day is uh, from Hope Lutheran Church, Aurora, Colorado, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and his sermon on this same gospel text, The First Fruits of Eternal Life. Here we go. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. His tomb is empty. They see the place where they laid him, and he is not there. The women came to the tomb seeking the living among the dead, and they did not find him. But he, our Lord Jesus, found the women who came to the tomb, and he found the disciples locked in the upper room, and he has found us as well this day. Found us this morning, gathered in his name to rejoice in the truth that he is risen Indeed, hallelujah. Dear saints, we consider this the greatest of all truths, the resurrection of Jesus this morning, and we consider it in three ways. First, according to its history. Second, according to the future promise. And third, according to its present hope and joy. First, the history. I remember hearing a few... Oh, this was years ago, a survey where Christians were asked the question, if the body of Jesus was found, they were, someone was digging around Jerusalem and they found the body of Jesus and they brought him forth and said, look, actually Jesus isn't raised, here he is, would that change your faith? And most of the Christians answering this survey said, no, that they would believe in Jesus even if he was found still dead and buried. And that is the wrong answer. St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 13, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, who he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. So if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
If Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. So far, St. Paul, who wants us to know that the resurrection of Jesus is not a myth or a fairy tale, but it is truth. It is history. Which is why this Easter greeting that we have in the church is so important. Christ is risen. He is risen. Indeed. In truth. In reality. The resurrection of Jesus is not some sort of spiritual truth. It's actual, physical, historical truth. Remember, the chief evidence that the Scriptures offer for the resurrection of Jesus is the empty tomb. I've often wondered why the church on Easter Sunday, why we read a gospel text that doesn't mention the resurrected Jesus. Jesus never shows up in the gospel reading. They go to the tomb, and the stone is rolled away, and the angels are there, but there's no Jesus. And the angel talks to them, and they leave the tomb afraid. Why? Why isn't Jesus mentioned? I mean, we have, and we'll hear it uh, tomorrow on Tuesday morning, we'll hear it next Sunday, the appearances of Jesus uh, to, to Mary Magdalene in the garden, to the women on the road, to Peter, to the disciples in the upper room, to the two disciples on the road, to Emmaus. But there's a reason, I think, that this morning we just hear about the empty tomb. Because the empty tomb preaches. And it preaches something very specific. That the body that was there is not there anymore. That particular body, the body that was born of the Virgin Mary, that was whipped and beaten and nailed to the cross... That body was raised. We might be tempted, I suppose, to be one of the people who would answer the survey question, if, G- if we found the body of Jesus, would it matter? We, we'd say, no, we still believe in Him, even if we found Him. But while that sounds pious, it is wrong. It is believing in the wrong Jesus. The Jesus of the church's confession, the Jesus in whom we believe and place our faith is the Jesus whose dead body was put into the grave and who came up out of the grave three days later. Historical fact. Historical reality. And I think really in some ways that's enough to preach. Just this fact that there was a man named Jesus who was crucified and who was dead and who was buried and on the third day rose again from the dead. It seems like we should just take 30 minutes and sit and think about it, or a few hours, or maybe just the rest of our lives, and think about that, that Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead. And that fact changes everything. It changes everything we know. It changes everything that we trust, everything that we hope for. It changes what we love. It changes what we desire. It changes how we live, and it changes how we die. From the smallest detail. the the thoughts and imaginations of our own heart, to the biggest events in history, even the, the, the end of the world, the resurrection of Jesus makes a difference. It changes absolutely everything. And I think in this way we're wandering on to the second point, which is the promise of the resurrection, the future resurrection. Because Jesus tells us that Jesus is only the first fruits of the resurrection. That means that he is the first to come up out of the grave, but he will not be the last. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is simply the first of the resurrection of every single person ever to live. Now, on this point, you might question and say, Pastor, Pastor, 
The Bible tells us about a number of people who were raised from the dead. Remember Lazarus? You were just preaching about Lazarus a couple weeks ago. The widow of Nain's son, Elijah and Elisha the prophets, Paul and Peter the apostles, all raised people from the dead. How can we call Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection if all these other people have come back from the dead? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> in all of these cases, eight times actually in the Bible, we have eight people who were, who were brought back to life. In all of these cases, it was life being restored to a mortal body. All of these people still had to die. Lazarus isn't still kicking around Jerusalem. He died at some point later. But Jesus' resurrection is different. He is raised immortal. He is perfected. He is now in the resurrection beyond the reach of sin and death, never to die again. And this resurrection, this perfected and immortal reunion of body and soul, this is what awaits all believers. Paul keeps preaching in 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Paul goes on to explain it like this. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is in dishonor. What is raised is in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. And this is Paul talking about our own burial. It's... Quite a stunning picture. How Paul looks at the burial of the Christian is like putting a seed in the garden. And you plant it and you cover it with dirt. And then when the time comes, it grows. So we go to the grave in mortality, in dishonor, in corruption. But we are raised immortal, in glory, and with power. Now, this is talking about the resurrection of the living, the resurrection of believers. There is, the Bible warns us, a resurrection of the unbeliever also. What Jesus himself calls the resurrection of condemnation in John 5. That's where for all of those who do not believe in Christ, the body and soul are reunited, but they are not perfected. And this body and soul reunited is handed over to eternal destruction, to hell itself. And this is why we are here this morning. We're trying to avoid that. In fact, it's why the Holy Spirit is putting into your ears and into your hearts today the Lord's Word so that you would believe and you would have the certain hope of the resurrection, not to condemnation, but the resurrection to life. So for you, Jesus says, and we should treasure these words, John 14, 19. Jesus says to you, because I live, you also will live. So we have this hope. The sure and the certain expectation that on the last day, Jesus will stand on the earth and he will call us out of our graves and our graves on that day will be as empty as the grave of Jesus today. And he will reunite our body and our soul and he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his heavenly body and he will usher us into the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the effect of the resurrection of Jesus 
on all of history, and the Bible calls this our great hope. In fact, almost all the time when the Bible is talking about hope, it's what it, this is what it is talking about. The resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And this, I think, takes us already to the third part of the sermon. We had the history of the resurrection. We have the future promise of the resurrection. But now, what about now? What does the resurrection matter today? To answer this question, I'd like to put into your ears the words that Jesus spoke to Martha, who was mourning the death of her brother Lazarus. This is John chapter 11. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now this is the promise for you today. You will never die. Now you say, Pastor, how can this be? I've seen Christians die all the time. And I say, you guys have a lot of questions this morning. (laughs) But that's another good one. There is a spiritual death and a physical death. The spiritual death is condemnation, what we talked about before, judgment from God. Spiritual death is hell. Spiritual death is getting what sinners deserve from God. But Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection, took the punishment that you and I deserve so precisely so that he can forgive your sins and give to you eternal life. And Jesus gives you this life. This spiritual life, this first resurrection, he gives it to you in baptism. He gives it to you in the preaching of the gospel. He gives it to you in the body and the blood with the forgiveness of sins. He gives you that spiritual life now, in, and we have that while we wait for the gift of eternal, eternal physical life in the resurrection. So in this passage, Jesus is talking about both, both physical and spiritual life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's the resurrection of the body. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is the resurrection of faith, the forgiveness of sins. And that is what you have today. This is, this is what it means to be set free by Jesus. This is the hope and the confidence and the glory, and the salvation that the resurrection of Jesus brings to us today. And it sets us free to live, and it sets us free also to die. Remember the picture. Now, I can't think of a better picture, so I have to preach this picture every Easter till I come up with a better illustration. And you get to hear it every Easter till I come up with a better one, but it's, it's the best I got. Remember that you're standing in a line, a long line. Everybody in the world is in it. And one at a time, the people at the front of the line are stepping through a veil, a curtain. And and you hear after they step through the curtain, you hear these two thuds. The closer you get, you start to see the outline, what's happening behind the veil. Just very hazy, you get to see that, that, that there's some sort of thug who's standing there on the other side of the veil, and he has a sledgehammer. And you're able to identify the two thuds because when someone steps through the veil, you see the sledgehammer come down and crush them. That's the first thud. And then their body hits the ground. That's the second one. And they're dragged off. And you no longer want to be in this line. (laughs) 
but you can't get out. And every minute you're getting closer and closer to the front. That's a frightful picture. But then someone, you can't believe it, someone comes and cuts in front of you. What's he doing? And you have your eyes on this one because he seems a little bit curious. And he, he goes through the veil before you. And just like everyone else who went through the veil, he is crushed on the head and he falls over in a heap and they come to haul the body away. But, but then some, something different happens. You see his body move a little bit. You see him shake a little and, and then you see him stand up and turn and face the thug with the sledgehammer and take it from his hand and smash him with the sledgehammer and toss it off to the side. And now this one turns and faces through the veil with his arms stretched out waiting for you. Jesus died, but Jesus rose and destroyed the power of death took away the sting of death, destroyed the authority of death, and rescued you from the fear of death. He has forgiven you all of your sins. And He has borne the condemnation for you so that you could hear the verdict of His kindness and His love. And He is the one who waits for you on the other side of this veil of tears. I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is true. This is good. And dear friends, this is your life. Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. Hallelujah. And the peace of God which passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Ira Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.